Uh, would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11? 1 Corinthians 11, from verse 17 through the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. Following the reading of Scripture, we'll sing the glory of pottery, which is in, printed for you in your bulletin. Let's please stand for the reading of God's holy word. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in or do, you de- or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we, are being judged, when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. And God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. Amen. We are working our way through the final sections of that uh, portion. How might we be delivered from our sin and misery? And how uh, these latter questions, how we begin to experience uh, that grace and blessing, specifically dealing with the sacraments. Uh, A couple weeks ago, we did the meaning of the sacraments in general. Last week, we talked about baptism. Today, our focus is the Lord's Supper. I won't be reading all the questions and answers as I sometimes do when we're going through these. I'll refer to some of them. You might want to keep that insert handy as you, if if you want to scan it while I'm referring to it. But what I want to do today in our reflection on the Lord's Supper is to first survey the key teachings of these questions and answers that we've recited together today. Uh, and think about some of the content of those. But then secondly, I want to take you 
back to this 1 Corinthians 11 passage because it's a significant passage teaching us about uh, the problems they had with their celebration of the Lord's Supper and how we might learn how to do it well and what's involved in our taking part in the Lord's Supper. But question 75 talks about our assurance of our experiencing the blessings of the Lord through taking part in the Lord's Supper. And here it's picking up the theme that was given to us when we talked about the sacraments in general. God in his kindness and his mercy to us, we are physical beings. And it's easy for us to lose sight of the spiritual being who is God and begin to feel like he's distant and far off. And God in his kindness has given us these physical symbols of his grace as a confirmation and affirmation of our faith to give us assurance and encouragement in our walk with the Lord. And in this question 75, we'll read part of this answer uh, toward the end, toward the middle and the end. Uh, First, his body was offered and broken on the cross for me and his blood shed for me as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup communicated to me. As sure as you take these elements into your hands, as sure as you see them, taste them, hear the word preached about them, uh, touch them, all the senses involved in taking the Lord's Supper, as sure as those are concrete things that you're sure of, that's how sure you can be that Christ died and you by faith possess grace in him. Uh, To do the next sentence, next section and further, that he feeds and nourishes my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood, as surely as I receive from the hands of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord as certain signs of the body and blood of Christ. So these are assurances and confirmation and encouragements to us of the uh, certainty of the work of Christ and our share in that by faith. Uh, Question 76 is asking the question, well, how do we feed on Christ in the supper? Uh, And older translations of these would say, not in a carnal way, that is not in a fleshly way, not in a superficially physical way, but we feed on him by faith. Uh, So we're not eating him in a fleshly way, but we're by faith embracing what Christ has done. Uh, Question 79, which I did not put on the insert because of time, uh, essentially says the same thing. And this is something that, as we'll talk about some differences of opinion here in a minute, uh, people don't get clarity in their mind. Uh, It's not the physical taking of the element that's significant. It's our embracing by faith. So I'd like you to turn, if you would, to John chapter 6. We have a similar misunderstanding that takes place in this interaction with uh, Jesus and the multitudes. Jesus had earlier in this chapter fed the 5,000 and they uh, had received from his hand the blessing, the multiplication of the, the loaves and the fishes. And they, the crowd was following him as Jesus confronted them with 
they were following him not because they believed in him, but because they had food and they wanted something more to eat. And it was the earthly, the temporal, the outward thing. And so Jesus has been going through this discussion with him about uh, the manna in the wilderness and the bread of life. But just to pick up the conversation in verse 44, John 6, 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will be all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the father and who learns from him comes to me. No one who has seen the father except the one who is from, the, from God, only he has seen the father. And I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. Now mark that down in your head as, we, as I continue to read. There's the focal point. It's whoever believes uh, in, in him has eternal life. That's the crux, believing for eternal life. But then he continues, verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? But Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, people get incredibly confused with those latter verses that I read because they forget what Jesus said when he started talking about this. It's whoever believes that will have eternal life. But he's the bread of life who gives his life for the world. He gives his flesh for the world. And he's using the imagery of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. But Jesus is not encouraging some sort of cannibalism, even though the early church was accused of that. Uh, He's not encouraging that. He's saying the the, the concrete offer that he is making in the sacrifice of himself on the cross, which will soon happen, is the source of their faith. And if they believe and if they trust and in that sense feed on the death of Christ, they will have everlasting life. So it's not uh, the, the tangible, the physical that's the key thing. That's not how we feed on Christ. It's by faith. And the elements of the Lord's Supper are that which by, that are assurance to us that if we trust in Christ, uh, we are feeding on him for everlasting life. So to come back to our catechism questions, where does Jesus institute this meal? Of course, it's in the upper room where he ate the Passover with his disciples. <clears throat> and Paul repeats this instruction in 1 Corinthians 11 and also in 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, there are two questions that are not on your insert, question 78 and question 80. <clears throat> and those questions bring up the differences 
on the view of Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper. And I want to take a few minutes to at least talk about that and read one of those questions and answers for you. Um, There's a, a great difference of opinion. The Roman Catholic and the Lutheran view is that Christ is physically present in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And the Roman Catholic view is that the substance of the elements are changed, they're transformed to become the literal, physical uh, flesh and blood of Christ. Now, they don't say that the, I mean, the, the, the bread still tastes like bread and the, the wine still tastes like wine, but they become literally, physically, the body and blood of Christ. And so their view is called transubstantiation. The substance is transformed. Now, the Lutheran view is still that Christ is physically present in the elements, but their view doesn't say that the elements transform, but that the body of Christ, the physical body of Christ, is on, under, and around the elements. And so their um, The word describing their view is consubstantiation, that the substance is around and with the elements. But in either case, both have the strong view that Christ is physically present uh, in the sacrament. And in the Heidelberg Catechism, this question is not on your sheet, but let me read it for you. Question 78, do then the bread and wine become the real body and blood of Christ? The answer, not at all, but as the water in baptism is not changed into blood, the blood of Christ, being only the sign and seal of the washing away of sin, appointed by God, so the bread in the Lord's Supper is not changed into the very body of Christ, though agreeable to the nature and properties of sacraments, it is called the body of Christ. So the Reformed view is, in a a sense, distinct. Many of our Protestant friends, because they're trying to avoid these other points of view, uh, would teach that the Lord's Supper is is, uh, just a mere memorial. Now, we agree that we do this in remembrance of Christ, but the Reformed view is what's referred to as the real presence of Christ. And what we mean by that is that we, we want to affirm that Jesus is actually present in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. It's just not thinking about him. He's actually with us, which makes the sacrament uh, have a sense of awe and seriousness and uh, purpose about it. But we see him not that he's physically present, but he's spiritually present. And so that when we eat with him and he with us, he is truly and really present with us through this meal. And it becomes for us uh, a nourishing, encouraging meal. Uh, And so the real presence of Christ is our point of view. It doesn't, the elements are not transformed, but they present to us in a real true sense Christ's presence with us. 
And so hopefully it, it does keep a sense of the awe and the seriousness and the benefit, the spiritual benefit, uh, but avoiding any sense of re-sacrificing the body of Christ in the table of the Lord. The um, last two questions are who should take the Lord's Supper? Well, those who repent of their sin and trust for Christ and desire to live a holy life. And the uh, non-Christian should not, or the impenitent or the non-Christian should not take part in this Lord's Supper. So there are some principles for you to kind of reflect on and think about and ask questions later if you have them. But I want you to come now back to 1 Corinthians and have us look at this particular section. It's very important because it, it instructs us a lot in the Lord's Supper. And Paul begins with a rebuke in verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. This is a time when it would be better not to meet than to meet. But uh, Paul rebukes these Corinthians, as he's been doing quite a bit and will do in this letter. Uh, maybe you've had a friend who said, well, I don't, I'm, I want to be in a, I wanna, don't want to be in a denomination. I just want a New Testament church. Whenever I think about that, you want a New Testament church. Uh, have you ever thought about Corinth? Corinth is a New Testament church. Is that what you want? No, of course they wouldn't want that. But that's a New Testament church right here. And they had all kinds of problems. And this particular problem is the problem they had in their celebration of the Lord's Supper. In verse 18, he says, I hear there are divisions when you come together. And for, for a moment, I, I begin to believe it. And what are the divisions about? What are the differences about? about? Um, he says in verse 19, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Uh, this pa- passage is very sobering because God is judging his people, judging his church. There are going to be those who are shown to be approved. There are those who not. If you skip ahead to verse 30, this is the judgment on those who weren't approved by God. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. There were those who died because of their disobedience and misuse of the Lord's Supper. Just like Ananias and Sapphira, when they lied to the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter five, were slain by the Lord. This is a severe and significant thing. What was the problem? What is it that, that, why would Paul say in verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. What's the problem that they're having? How is it that they're violating uh, the Lord's Supper in such a dramatic and significant way? Uh, Verse 21 tells us what is the problem. Here's the problem that they're having. Paul's going to give us the problem. He's going to uh, talk about the root cause of that problem, and then he's going to tell us tell them how to correct it. The problem of their celebration of Lord's Supper in verse 21, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry and another gets drunk. Now, what's that all about? Well, the church many times in its history and at this early time in its history would have often a meal together, and then as part of that, then would have a service of worship and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But in that culture, 
maybe some similarities in our own day, but in that culture, in that same church, you would have the wealthy, and you would have the poor, you would have the masters, and you would have the slaves, all equal members of the church. But not everybody, the wealthy and the masters, well, they could get to church on time, or even maybe a little early, but the poor and the slaves, they couldn't get there until they were freed up by their masters to go. And so what would happen is those people who would arrive on time or a little early, they would get tired of waiting around for the rest of the people to show up. And so what would they do? They would eat together and they'd have the Lord's Supper without the rest of the people being there. And some who would come later would be hungry and the others who had been there early would be drunk. They were violating the unity of the church. And Paul rebukes them severely in verse 22. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? You see, their actions were not just dishonoring God in a general sense. It was not just that they were living for themselves and satisfying their own hunger. But their actions, what caused Paul to rebuke them, is that they were despising the church of God. They weren't waiting for the other Christians They were humiliating the other believers. And they were despising them. They were despising the body of Christ. And that's why judgment would fall on some of them. Uh, He continues it in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. An unworthy manner. It's not that any of us are worthy. He doesn't say if any of you eat and drink and you're unworthy. Because everyone who comes to eat and drink is unworthy. No one is worthy of this. But that's not what Paul says. He says if you're eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. That is they're eating and drinking without waiting for one another without showing love to their fellow believers. Here in this verse, what he says, what they're doing, not only are they despising the church of God, but they are sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. These are severe things. These are severe accusations. This is severe rebuke and condemnation. But it's what they're doing. By Eating and not waiting by showing disregard for their fellow believers. They're despising the church of God and they're sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And therefore judgment comes upon them. And some are even falling asleep. Well, why is it that they're acting in this way? Well, verse 29 gives us an indication. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. The reason they were disregarding 
God's commands and, and acting in such a way is because they weren't recognizing the body of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? <clears throat> what does it mean to recognize the body of the Lord? Well, I think in this context and with this description, what it, it means two things. The first thing that it means is we have to recognize the body of the Lord that's the covenant community. We don't take the Lord's Supper on our own. We would say it's wrong and improper for a family to do the Lord's Supper by themselves in their home. In normal circumstances, maybe if we take persecution, we can look elsewhere. But thinking in terms of what's the norm... To recognize the body of the Lord is to recognize that we're all part of this covenant community. We're bound together. And when one part's missing, we're missing that part. Paul's going to go on to expand this idea in 1 Corinthians 12, the chapter that's to come. But to recognize the body of the Lord and so therefore to take the, the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner is to recognize that we're all together. That we're part of this common communion. And we commune not only with God as individuals, but we commune with one another. Together we're part of the body of Christ. And when we ignore other Christians and disregard them, we're despising the church of God and sinning against the blood and body of Christ. The other element, obviously, in recognizing the body of the Lord is to recognize the elements, what they signify. The bread it, representing the, the body of Christ broken for us, the cup, the, the blood of Christ shed for us. Uh, we have to recognize that. It's not just a, you know, we can, we can drink wine and have crackers at home. But that's not the Lord's Supper. These elements are set apart to God's sacred use. They, in a particular way, uh, display to us the body and blood of Christ. And so it's a significant part of our recognizing that these are different. They're unique. They're part of this sacramental uh, interchange that's going on between one, us and one another and, and with our God. Well, how can they change their point of view? Well, how do they correct their wrong view of these things and help themselves to recognize uh, the, the body of the Lord? Well, they need to uh, reflect again, and this is where Paul gives the institution of the supper. It's something you hear me quote very regularly. Uh, it's, we need to reflect on what the table of the Lord means. We need to reflect on the institution of the supper. And allow that to sink into our hearts so we can reflect on that and the meaning of that and the significance of that, of Jesus presenting his, his body and the Jesus presenting his blood. And a second element is to examine yourself. In verse 28, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. You need to be able to think through your relationship with the Lord. Are you a Christian? Do you believe? Do you trust the Lord? This is why, even though we believe in baptizing our infants, we believe that before they're admitted to the table of the Lord, they 
have to make some profession of faith that they have to be able to to answer this do they uh, can they examine themselves and know their relationship with the Lord I uh, won't have you turn there but second Corinthians 13 5 says examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith test yourselves do you not realize that Christ is in you unless of course you fail the test so this idea of examining ourselves just to it, it, God is not intending for you to be perfect, but just do you have faith? Reflect on that. Uh, what does that mean for you? So reflect on the institution of the Lord's Supper. Reflect on your own faith and remember again that you're a member of a body. And you cultivate that relationship. You be considerate of your brothers and sisters in the Lord. You don't disregard them. They're a significant part of you, uh, a part of your life completely, but especially part of your life as we worship the Lord together. And so you and I are encouraged to uh, reflect on the significance of the Lord's Supper, reflect on the meaning of the elements, reflect on your connection with the body of Christ. And examine yourself, um, again, not for perfection, but that there's a, a genuineness of your hope and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Many times you'll doubt that, but you can come back to reflecting on the truth of who Jesus is. May you and I make our communion with one another what it needs to be. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the sacraments, for the for baptism, for the Lord's Supper and what they can mean for us. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to grow in our appreciation for these wonderful gifts you've given to us. And may they be the encouragement and help to us in our faith. And may you be glorified and honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.